Come on in, sit down, grab a beer, and get comfy for yet another Beer Napkins podcast. We hope you'll find the next 30 minutes or so enjoyable, educational, and inspirational. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check our web, our site at beerandnapkins.com, all one word, and use the word and, and not the symbol. And you can also find us on Twitter at Beer and Napkins, again, all one word. Beer and Napkins helps generate new ideas and new initiatives by leveraging informal third spaces, community-enabled design, and visual thinking. Now off we go. A big round of applause for our hosts. Hey, Paul. Uh, like we were mentioning, we haven't done this podcast since we were at a brewery. So it's a little change since uh, last year. Yeah, that's uh, what What are we saying now? BC, right? Before coronavirus? After, yeah, yeah. Um, how are you? How are you doing, Paul? You know, I'm doing, I, I was kidding around with somebody the other day, not really kidding, but talking. And my life has changed so very little. Uh, I've been working from home for 20 some years. Um, not, you know, somebody that was a big, uh, you know, going out and every night kind of thing. So my life hasn't changed much. I feel like I have a little bit of survivor guilt, um, mm. because I know how bad it is for other people and I'm not mm. running into that problem. So mm. there's, there's some of that where I, I feel bad and I feel like I should be doing something more, uh, but it is what it is. And we are mm. just got to deal with it and um one foot in front of the other right how about you right right. i'm um doing well on this side uh i have totally uh discontinued my travel last year i hit about 70 80 percent travel so that has abruptly stopped so um a lot of working from home Uh, our office finally opened up from my corporate job i'm i'm in here with a limited amount of staff but uh uh, open it up. I actually, I work from home a lot and remote a lot and, uh, I got tired of working from home. <laughs> so I kind of, uh, kind of jumped out and, and, and wanted to kind of have a different place. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to third spaces, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm eager for a different space besides home. So yeah, eager that, mm-hmm. but you know, changes, right? We, we, we're going to talk to, um, uh, Teddy Fishman, uh, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, those China changes and how to navigate those things from her perspective. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of almost, I feel kind of guilty too uh, that I've kind of embraced this change and navigated um, in different ways uh, and experimented. So, I almost kind of dig some of the things that's uh, that's occurred, not the, uh, of course, the suffering aspect. Um, my heart goes out to all the uh, pain and suffering out there. And uh, uh, but in, in, in terms of connecting with people, um, I've, I've found like I've connected uh, in a deeper level with some people. I don't know if you've experienced that, Paul, but um, I feel like I've gotten closer to you and and other people that I've, I've worked uh, have worked with and sure. been acquainted with. So, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of you know kind of reaching back out, right? Because it's it's um, you know it's one of those things is when you know you can't, you need to more. I, you mm. know, it's kind of when when they say you can't have that candy, all of a sudden you really really want that candy, right? Right. So it's uh, the idea that 
we can't get together. So now all of a sudden it has a, a greater importance, I, you know, because I think it's always been there. We've always had the ability to connect and, and, right. and talk to people um, and do that on a non-digital version, right? On an analog mm-hmm. version, either via the phone and, and Zoom is almost an analog version, but yes, um, the idea that it's not just typing. And I think that has just been been reinforced that that you know we can do that we we can actually see each other when we talk we can set up time i know um i put something on facebook about are you are people reaching out and doing more family calls more family group calls mm-hmm. kind of conversations and the, the over you know resoundingly the answer was yes and i'm even doing that i do a a weekly call with my five brothers and sisters now on on Wednesdays, we're now doing a, a weekly call with our two kids on Sundays. So, I mean, it's um, it, it does re- the, these kinds of things put things in perspective, right? They mm-hmm. put uh, the priorities out there, and I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, but it's like everything else, you know. You hear it every time. We heard it back in 9/11. We heard it in 2008. Any time that there's stress on the system, it makes mm. us reevaluate. That's true. And That's true. I just wish it wasn't as painful and as deadly. Agreed. Agreed. So um, this is a good segue. Um, So good to hear from you, Paul. And it's always kind of good to get back together and uh, really reflect on uh, where things are going. And and the whole, again, the whole purpose of Beer Napkins is about informality and the ideas around these third spaces. And we can't get to these third spaces. So we have to create this third space virtually. And uh, I think we've been thriving. So Thank you, Paul, for your, your uh, connection and uh, just moving this forward. So saying that, our guest today is Teddy Fishman. And welcome, Teddy. And uh, just a little bio f- about Teddy. She's originally from St. Louis, Missouri, the home of bland dialects. Is that right? <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> uh, so Teddy is an educator, a higher education consultant, as well as an improviser and stand-up comedian. We love improvisers and comedians. Teddy sees humor as providing much-needed occasions for stress relief, catharsis, and opportunities to bond and form connections across societal divides, but also as a vector for reform and catalyst for change. So uh, interesting enough, on January the 22nd, uh, Teddy and another colleague of ours, uh, uh, Lisa, I call her Laura at the meeting, but uh, Lisa (laughs) Corley uh, did a session on um, uh, using improv and to deal with chaos and the VUCA environment. Uh, Teddy, did we know this shit is going down? <laughs> oh my gosh. If we had known, we would have taken it more seriously and maybe just hunkered down in the pub. Oh, wow. It was, uh, I mean, it was, it's it, almost it a foretelling. It's a good place to shelter in place. That's for <laughs> right? sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, again, it, it has a more significant meaning now as we, we did that. And if anybody wants to kind of see some of the things, we have that on the, the uh, Teddy was nice enough to kind of pull down some, some summary of that meeting in January 22nd. So it was it, rightfully so to, to kind of bring back Teddy to kind of reflect on after that and here uh but just uh just kind of before we kind of get into some questions uh about your methodologies and your your inside 
just kind of tell us a little bit about your history, like, uh, how do you come about your passions and things? So I'm going to turn it over to you, Teddy. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Um, the Beer Napkins group was such a perfect group to practice this with that I'm really eager to have that conversation continue. Um, for about a decade, I was a director of an organization that's main mission was to change culture uh, regarding academic integrity. It's the International Center for Academic Integrity, and I worked with colleges and universities around the world, a few high schools, a few uh, K through 12 schools, but mostly colleges and universities. And we worked to make integrity something that the community would be more eager to embrace. And it's really important to understand it as a community effort because you can't change culture externally, right? You can't make a culture change. You have to, uh, you have to get people excited about it. And what we found was that the level of engagement had to do with a lot of different factors, but some of the most important were letting people, uh, helping them connect with or identify the values that were shared. And then from there, we could work on um, finding ways to really bring about some fundamental changes with the way people thought about things. And so when that job ended, what I was mainly interested in is looking at ways to bring about a positive cultural change in other environments. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was separately doing improv is that so many of the lessons from improv transfer over to things that just are super helpful with regular life. Excellent. So this, this improv, how did you... How did you kind of um, start infusing improv? How did you get started in improv? So uh, I was having a lot of changes in my own life. As I said, the job that I loved so much came to an end. And uh, also I was uh, exiting my 20-year starter marriage. So I was looking for ways that I could just kind of be out of my head for a little while. And one day I thought, you know, the improv that I like to go see, maybe I'll just take a class and I'll see, you know, what it's like to be on the other side of that. And I never thought that that would go anywhere at all, but I loved it so much once I got started and talk about something that gets you out of your head. The, the challenge of it is that you never know what's going to happen. So you really have to focus a hundred percent, which is um, for me akin to getting into that work zone where you're really in a flow, you know, you're just completely within the moment. And that was exactly what I needed um, just as a break from all of the other things uh, that I was thinking about at the time. Were you naturally an introvert or were you extrovert or did that have any effect on you getting in that kind of uncomfortable, uncertain environment that improv kind of... I am such an extreme introvert. When I was in junior high school, I was too shy to order food at a, at a fast food counter. Like if somebody else wouldn't order it for me, I would just not have anything because I was so shy. Um, and oh, in I fact, wish I had that diet. <laughs> in fact, when uh, you know, I went to take the class and I was very happy and comfortable in the class environment. And on the first day, they mentioned that we would be doing a showcase that would be open to the public. And I almost never came back. Like I, I was that, um, I was that just distressed by that idea. And um, that was one of the first times in improv that I really had to lean into some discomfort. If I wanted to have this remarkable thing in my life, the showcases were part of it. And so I, uh, I had to take the plunge. Wow. 
And uh, as you kind of progress through this, uh, what what insights did you kind of garner from th- that experience? Did it kind of challenge your existing uh, 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 thoughts of who you are as an introvert, or or what? How did that? How did that transition of of kind of navigating in that sphere? Well, it challenges everything because, especially in for those of us in academia. Um, but just generally for human beings, we all kind of get into routines where we are used to doing things a particular way. And if someone suggests something different, we all, like our natural response is to say, oh, you know, I'm just gonna keep doing it the way that I've always done it. And improv doesn't allow that. Like each time you and your scene partner or partners are creating a new universe, so you are co-constructing reality. Like you really have to engage and realize that whatever happens is going to happen because you made it happen. And there is no room in that kind of an environment for saying no to what might be a good idea, right? You want to take advantage of all the good ideas that you can. And that really is a shift in thinking that changed the way that I look at the world. Another part of it was to always be thinking uh, on your feet and saying, okay, if this is true in this environment, what else would be true in this environment? And that's one of the things that made me, um, made me not exactly welcome chaos, but know that chaos can be generative of some really remarkable insights that you wouldn't get otherwise. Mm, that makes sense. I've been taught, like when I was professionally developing, uh, that. I was an introvert as well. So the first thing I did was um, in college, I joined a fraternity to, to make myself more sociable. And of course I went down a bad path with that. So we won't go there, but anyway, <laughs> um, th- but after, after college, uh, I wanted to learn to speak better. So I joined uh, Toastmasters and it was, it was almost a kind of a very rigid, uh, uh, you know, with, with counting your us and ums and I'm still not a great speaker. So I, 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 I I felt, you know, it was a good experience and I'm not uh, ragging Toastmasters or anything, but uh, I, I felt that it was very linear, very, very uh, prescriptive and, and, and this is this is what you should do. And I think there's some elements of, of importance to that. But uh, what's the, so in terms of presentation, your professionalism, what, what has improv given you? Is it, is it different than say the, 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 the kind of a normal speaking kind of thing or what, what? Oh, it's very different than normal speaking, but I have to, I have to speak to, to what you said about counting the ums and not being a good speaker. What I would say to you is the test of whether or not you're a good speaker is if the things that you want to communicate are communicated. And I think you do that beautifully. And I think like spending, I, I, I don't know much about Toastmasters and I'm sure that they do lots of good work, but I would say spend less time talking, counting ums and more time measuring affect, right? That's, that's the measure of a good speaker. Um, but yeah, it's such a different environment because with a regular speech, and I had done this you know, for the past 15 years, maybe, maybe even longer, you try to know as much as possible about the subject. You try to anticipate any questions that anybody's going to have. And, and the emphasis is on preparedness and making sure that you know what your audience's needs are and you meet them. But with improv, 
you don't have any idea what's going to happen at all. So there is no amount of preparedness other than getting your head used to uh, particular ways of thinking about things. And one of the ways I already mentioned, the, the thinking, okay, if this is true, then what else would be true? But also some other like just shifts in the way we usually do things um, such as knowing that you are responsible for your message. One of the first lessons you learn in practice is that if I try to say something to you and you don't understand what I tried to communicate, then we are going to proceed on the basis of what you think I said, right? So it's my yeah. responsibility to make sure that you know what I said, because if not, then we're going with the new thing, right? Which wow, maybe we co-created accidentally. Wow. That's a, that's a great well, ground. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Teddy. That means it's always my fault, and that can't be. <laughs> um, so, so in a way, it it is each person's responsibility that is in the scene. It is both of their faults all the time, right? Any choice you make, even a choice that. that you didn't know mm -hmm. you were making, it's your responsibility. And you also get to, you know, the the flip side of that is that you get to live in this cool world that you've just created, right? So it's not a bad thing that it's your responsibility. It's an opportunity. So you're running, so somebody says something, let's just say this is in a business setting and, and you, you you say something and the other person, do you set set the ground rules for the conversations? Say if you're in a team or something, do you set these ground rules of, of, at the beginning or how, how do you, how do you navigate and, and set those particular uh, parameters? That's a great question. Each form has particular parameters. And, you know, so like a sonnet has, you know, its lines, it's going to be 14 lines of iambic pentameter, a improv, um, like a herald in an improv uh, performance is going to be uh, three beats and each beat is going to have a certain number of scenes, you know, and so you set those things. But within those things, you leave yourself open. And one of the ways you do that is that most improv starts with a suggestion from the audience. So, you know, that ensures that there's going to be an element from the outside that, um, that creates part of the reality. And then the choices that get made early in the performance, those are going to be choices that the characters have to live with. You know what I mean? So if I decide yeah. that I'm going to have an exaggerated limp, I better be ready to do that for the rest of the hour or however long it lasts, because I've just told you that that's <laughs> who I am, right? Um, so, so within those parameters, all the choices are available to you. Mm. That's great. So it's a, a unique way to look at it. Yeah, it's like it's like the form decides the outside of the container, and you decide what you're going to put in it. Mm. Then mm. the possibilities are, are kind of open up when you kind of lay it out that way. They absolutely do. And each time a new choice gets made, then that means that everything else is going to proceed on the basis of what that choice was. So um, if I decide that we are in space, then we're going to be in space for the rest of the of the scene or the rest of the performance, whichever way the form works. Um, but if I decide we're in space and you decide you're a zoo zookeeper, now we have a whole different environment and now we are, we are the keepers of space animals. You know what I mean? Wow. Yes. It changes absolutely. really fast. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, is there any particular story or impactful moment that these, these techniques that you've learned through imp improvs that really, 
brought it home to you that the the importance of of having this kind of mental mindset of improv in your interactions, whether it's in business or personal. Is, is there any particular story you would like to share with the audience? Sure. Um, there was one we were talking about how it matters that you are clear in your communication. Uh, there was one where the suggestion was Agincourt, so the, a historical suggestion. But one of the improvisers heard the word Asian court. That's just what he heard. And so I came out on stage as if I were riding a horse, and he came out on stage swinging a tennis racket. And the fact that we made that scene work with completely different understandings of what the suggestion was, it really was an epiphany that, that no matter how divergent, no matter how weird the thing is that your scene partner comes out with, you, you know, if you're committed to it and you're like, okay, you know, you've got a tennis court, I think it's, it's you know, a battle in England. We're just going to make, we're going to make sure that that works. Mm, mm, that's great. <laughs> See, now that's, that's where you wouldn't want me in the game because I wouldn't know that reference anyway. <laughs> so I would have came out with something completely different than both of those. Mm. But I'm, I'm listening to your stories here. And Teddy, I, I have a question because I always try to bring this back to real life. And I don't mean real, that, that, that what you do isn't real life, but a lot of people that are going to be listening, listening to this think in terms of, uh, you know, that, that, that this is for the stage and this is for Second City TV and this is for SNL. Um, how, you know, in, in our world, uh, from a day-to-day standpoint, especially when we talk about businesses and generating new ideas and things like that, how conditioned is the average person to not be able to do this very well? Well, there are a couple of things that work. First of all, unfortunately, we have that we have the unfortunate idea that once we aren't children anymore, we should leave play behind, which I think is a terrible mistake. It makes people's lives less happy than they could be. Um, so that's one thing that conditions us against it. But the second thing is, is that human beings get so conditioned to routine and forcing ourselves to think about things that we've never thought about before in our whole lives is hard and uncomfortable. And so the process, the practice, you know, actually practicing regularly, thinking about something um, you mentioned that that you wouldn't have gotten the Agincourt reference. I barely did. Like I was like, okay, I, what I remember about this is it was a battle, and somehow horses were important, and that was really all I remembered about it. That's why I came out as if I were on a horse. Um, imagine if you were in a business setting, and somebody suggests something brand new that you've never done before. It's wildly divergent. People would have to learn tons of new skills. You can imagine that in most corporate um, corporate environments, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. What improv teaches you to do is not resist that wildly different thing that you don't even know exactly what it is, and you're not sure that it's going to work. Like all that stuff, it, you just practice. It becomes a habit of mind to drop that automatic no and instead to respond with, okay, and if that's going to happen, what else could we do? But does, does that presuppose a certain amount of vulnerability? And I think one of the things I found over my career is that's something most people don't want to bring to the office, that they don't know, that they're vulnerable, they're not as smart as their, their, their cube mate or whatever. So, and especially as you advance, right? So if you become a manager, director, VP, CEO, I mean, you cannot be vulnerable. You cannot make it look like you don't know where this is going to go. That is such a good point. Um, so, so the reason that 
a, a reason that improv can help people get over that is that there is no expectation that people are going to know everything when you're doing an improv set. So yes, it is a it is definitely a requirement that you be vulnerable, but the expectation, unlike that corporate environment, the expectation is that everybody's going to be vulnerable. Nobody is going to be entirely certain of what's going on. And once you make the leap to being comfortable with that sort of um, mental headspace, you know what I mean? I don't know what's going to happen and maybe this will fail. And that's another thing thing that I haven't mentioned yet that's so important about improv is I just told you about a scene where you know things worked out great there are lots of scenes that don't go well at all and and you have to be used to the fact that if you were going to take um if you're going to take risks that are significant enough to be entertaining sometimes you're going to fail and just getting comfortable I was I was terrified of that like that's why I almost walked out when I heard we were going to do a showcase performance because through my whole academic life like you do not want to have a speech ever that just loses your audience completely. And, you know, being vulnerable, taking risks in the improv space makes you realize that, you know what, I could, I could pitch this new idea. We could try it. It could fail. And, you know, next day we're going to get up, we're going to eat breakfast and we're going to do something else. Hmm. That's, that's great. Um, couple of questions. Um, what are your favorite improv tools and, and especially in the context of this, this environment, we call it VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. What would, what would you say the toolbox for the audience, what would you say some of your go-to uh, improv uh, uh, tools are? Um, one of them is that if you try something a little bit and it fails, you might want to try it a whole bunch and see what happens. And that's the thing that is also counterintuitive in business. Um, we have a saying that says, you know, you don't want to jump halfway across a creek. And sometimes the reasons that things don't work is because you just haven't put quite enough into them. And that's, that's definitely a great tool. Um, another one would be the practice of knowing that uh, for something to work, it has to work for everybody on the stage. And that's, you know, again, in, in business and in academia, a lot of us have a different kind of mindset. You know, I mean, I want to have the best idea. And, you know, if, if John's idea fails, then maybe my idea will look better. We don't articulate that, but we feel like that sometimes when we're pitching mm. ideas. Um, and, and, and improv, I don't know if I'd call it so much a, a, of a tool as a mindset, is that for this to work, for this scene to work, all of us have to look good. So, you know, if you if you need a little help, I'm going to be there, you know, to fill that in. And then I trust that when I need a little help, you're going to be there to fill that in. And together, that's going to make the success on the stage. Um, I'm trying to think. There are so many others. The one that I mentioned before is the one that I use most often to deal with volatility is to think in terms of, okay, if this is true, then what else is true? And I guess another one that I, I would probably classify as a mindset rather than a tool, but it, it works like a tool, is not to deny anybody else's reality. And that's one that I think, um, like I know I need practice still with that in real life, but if somebody tells you that something is true for them in improv, then that is true for them. And you, you adapt to incorporate the fact that they have just told you what their truth is and not try to talk them out of it or um, try to have a competing truth that seems better. 
Uh, I like that. And I think that goes along with the, the yes butters that you're trying to discount their actions and you're kind of uh, advocating your position. I actually, you know, from, from, from working with you, uh, uh, actually incorporated that into the, uh, the, the beer and napkins, uh, at the sessions that I have, I put that as a ground rule, uh, limit your yes, buts in the process. I, I think that's such a important not to discount other people's, but build on it. And collectively, like you said, make everybody look good. I think that's one of my takeaways from the improv process. Yeah. And, and one of the things we do is, is we talk about the fact that this is all ephemeral, right? This isn't going to last forever. So mm-hmm. you have to entertain the, the concept that they put forth for the time being. And then later you can have a different scene that does a different thing. You know what I mean? Mm. So you're not abandoning your own reality. You're just saying, okay, you know, you have, you've told me what is true for you and we're going to at least explore. Mm. And with the assumption that what is true for you is true. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, man, that was so jam packed. You got so many (laughs) things, uh, uh, Part. So thank you so much, Teddy. So we're going to kind of move into a fun part of our session. And, and, and Paul, Paul likes to ask some of these fun questions. Uh, what are some of the uh, questions we want to ask on the, on the fun level, Paul? Well, considering I wasn't planning on doing this and you're just surprised. You're improv it's improv. Right? <laughs> there you go. Yes. And it, <laughs> but, and, and, and I'll, I'll probably throw a few uhs in there or ums or whatever, right? Well, um, I will not count know, the them. Fun side, the fun side of things, I guess, I, I don't know if you're, are you referring to our top 10 question? Type oh, thing? yeah. Oh, yeah. The good questions. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of them are things like, here's a question for you, Teddy, is that what is your favorite sound? Oh, Wow. I have several. I love the sound. I live right along the river and I love the sound that the frogs make. I don't know if it's called a chirp or a peep or, or that, like to me, that is like the nighttime sound. Um, and then when I can have it, I love the sound of waves crashing, which I think is, is one of the things that ties us together is that all of those oceans are, are touching. And so like if we step into the water, then we're actually connected with the whole world. And to mm. me, that sound of the ocean crashing um, always puts me in that mindset. Nice. And, and of course, every question that is, is, what is your favorite? There's always the, you know, the anti-question is, what's your worst sound? Oh, gosh. <laughs> hmm. I hate the sound of, I was a police officer for a little while in my early, early life. And I hate the sound of brakes squealing right before a crash. Like, and and mm. where that came into play is like sometimes you'd be working in an accident and people would be looking and then you'd hear that noise mm-hmm. and you just oh. knew, oh, gosh, they just realized. And then then there's another accident. So I absolutely hate that sound. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Oh, gosh. Imagine. All right, Phil, your turn. You all go. right. All right. What's your favorite cuss word? Oh, man. Um, right now I like twat waffle. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it has like, it has a really bad word in it, but then you add waffle and it seems silly. So, uh, I think that's like a good it. What was the word again? The tough? Twat waffle. Oh, twat waffle. Okay. Yes. Got oh, yeah. See, yeah. If you get to spend any time with anybody from the UK, they have the best words. I don't yeah. care. They really do. <laughs> I'm going to have to start using like that. UK kinda, that sounds like a UK kind of, uh, 
of yes. Kind of a <laughs> yes. I, I, I like that one. That's uh, so descriptive. I'm going to start borrowing that one. Um, uh, so let's see what else. Uh, your favorite color. See, this is a harder question than you would think. I like blue and I like red and I like purple. And which one is my favorite just depends on how I'm feeling and what we're talking about. Like red for shoes and shirts, um, blue for uh, painting, purple just to be wild. I like it. You like rainbow, right? That's your color, yes, rainbow. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, well, we thank you so much, Teddy, for being on here and sharing your insights through the the prism of of uh, improv and some of the the insights that you can provide us. And definitely, I, I, I dig it. And I know Paul digs. We all kind of dig this spirit of, uh, of of flexibility and the language, uh, the interactions, and how we can kind of be a better person through this whole thing. Um, that we're dealing with now. So I think it's a great tool. How can people get in touch with you, Taddy? Um, people are welcome to connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Teddy Fish on Twitter. I'm Teddy Fish, but with a space in between it on Facebook. Uh, or, you know, they can they can reach me through you guys or through email. Any of those would be fine. Excellent. Excellent. And I, uh, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to go rogue on you again here real quick. Um, is there one or two little things that you would like to leave with the listeners that would help them advance into doing more of this kind of, uh, um, you know, improv kind of work or what two references or, you know, other than yourself, obviously, but what other great places could they go to to learn more or one piece of advice you could give them to take away from this? Oh, wonderful. Um, well, in Greenville here, I would definitely suggest checking out Alchemy Comedy. That's where I got started and where I still am a cast member, along with a couple other places. If you're cool. in Greer, uh, when we're not pandemicking anymore, we also perform at Stomping Grounds, a coffee house. And that's a different troupe. That's not Alchemy. That's a group called Never Decaf. Uh, so those are two great local resources. Um, cool. I would encourage anybody to just uh, you know, pick up an improv book. There's one called Robot Pirate Ninja that's kind of fun, but there are like just go and, and find one that speaks to you because there are definitely different flavors of improv books. What, some that describe what happens in particular troops and some that describe the principles. And then I think the last bit of, um, I don't know, improv wisdom that I would say is that one of the best things that you learn as an improviser is to make conscious choices, like to have every choice that you make uh, have meaning and impact. And especially right now where we are transitioning from a world that we knew to a new world that we're gonna have to try to invent or evolve, um, I, make choices that create the world that you wanna make. Perfect, wonderful. And watch whose line is it anyway. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I should have said that first, actually. That, that <laughs> might have been where I, that and Monty Python. Um, oh, I love Help Python. you fall in love with improv. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And uh, please give us a five star to kind of keep this uh, going. And we're going to continue this, Paul, right? We're going to, we're going to keep rolling with our podcasts and uh, maybe, maybe uh, one day we'll, we'll reconvene in a public setting. But until then, we'll keep, we'll keep keeping it flexible, right? Thank exactly. you so much. You. It was a delight. Yeah. Thanks, Teddy. Thanks.
Thanks so much for your time today. If you'd like to be a part of the podcast, check our website at beerandnapkins.com, all one word, for our schedule. We always record live in a pub and love to have you in the audience. Until our next podcast, here's to new ideas, new friends, and the pubs that enable greatness. Thank you so much for listening.